This is Dave Moss of the Unfunded List, and I'm pleased to bring you the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. I was so excited to do this next interview that I flew across the entire country to do it. I had never been to Los Angeles before and made very good use of my time there, but interviewing the Roddenberries was at the top of my to-do list for the trip. Rod Roddenberry is the executive producer of the CBS hit Star Trek Discovery, and his father Gene created the entire Star Trek franchise, one of the most successful and far-reaching entertainment franchises in history. It's also one of the most forward-thinking franchises. Most science fiction is about horrible monsters and disasters befalling us. Star Trek has its share of monsters and disasters, but it's about so much more. It's about our potential. A progressive show from the beginning, Star Trek broadcast the first interracial kiss seen on television, and Rod's dad once famously refused sponsorship from a cigarette company that wanted Kirk to smoke on the bridge of the Enterprise. There are parallels between science fiction and philanthropy. Older organizations tend to give like classic science fiction movies. They give in response to disasters, they give in response to disease, and they give in response to good fundraising appeals. I personally look forward to a next generation of philanthropists and organizations who are more forward-thinking with their approaches. Heidi and Rod Roddenberry are such philanthropists, and they invited me to their extremely cool Los Angeles studio slash foundation, along with their very talented CEO, Leora Ip, to chat philanthropy. Most of their giving happens through the Roddenberry Foundation. This was a long chat, folks, so we've broken it down into two episodes. And uh, we're just going to dive right into Rod telling us a little bit about his childhood. and uh, we saw less of each other and I, I got into my heavy metal music and thought I was, you know, I knew everything and, and was cooler than anyone and, and we would butt heads and, and uh, then he passed away when I was 17. So uh, that's, that's my story in quite a short nutshell. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're in Los Angeles, Andy? Oh, yes. It okay. was all in Los Angeles. So you, you've been in Los Angeles your entire life? I went to college in Massachusetts. I lived in Toronto to work on a TV show. Hmm. Spent a summer in the Florida Keys. But, but yes, many decades. Yes, uh, here in Los Angeles, you like it here? You've stayed, so no. I'm actually I'm one of the negative ones. It's not, <laughs> that, I, it's not that I I hate LA itself. It's, I it's, I just arrived here yesterday for the first time ever. And then, what do you think? Uh, it's it's bigger than other cities okay. I've been to. I grew up in Maine, okay. and this is <coughs> this is like the anti-Maine. I think everything's different here. Got it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, traffic here is what kills me. <laughs> yeah, we. This uh, is not a main, a concept I'm familiar with in Maine. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's no longer predictable here. You know, like, like 20, 30 years ago, it was predictable. <laughs> you don't go out, you know, in the morning or in rush hour. But now there can be traffic anytime, weekend, midday, whatever. So, and I also would argue that LA, and I know people will argue against me, but I'll, I'll say something controversial just so you get more ratings. Uh, that's why I'm saying it, but I feel this way. I don't think LA has a real identity. Like, Maybe I'm too close to it, but San Francisco, I feel, has an identity. New York has big other big cities seem to have more of an identity. Even Miami seems to have an identity. L.A. feels so spread out, like it doesn't know what it is. Mm-hmm. But, but maybe I'm too close to it and can't see it. Uh, mm-hmm. One might argue Hollywood, but I don't know if I would call that an identity for it. So I, I, I don't know. Anyhow, to answer your question, appreciate the city. Great food. Traffic sucks. Would prefer <laughs> living somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you uh, could, could uh, I mean, you're kind of uh, pot committed now, you roots planted, you have this nice office here, but mm-hmm. uh, where would it be if you, you oh, go somewhere else? Well, I, I would probably say, if I were younger, I'd say San Francisco, but I think Hawaii in my, mm. I'm not old, but my older years would mm-hmm. probably be. Yeah, you, know, you, you do have time, maybe someday. Yes, maybe someday. <laughs> uh, uh, so, um, so growing up, did you, uh, did you volunteer, did you do any uh, giving uh, of any sort, uh, involved in any sort of... Good I, causes. I'd love to lie to you uh, <laughs> and say how great of a person I was. Um, no, you know, we had, in our senior year of high school, I don't want to say it's my only community service, but it might be my only community service. In my senior year of high school, we were required to do, I can't remember, mm-hmm. 30, 30 hours of community service or something like that. Yeah, they called it uh, Focus Day. Well, yeah, whatever we it had was. To, we were given three options yeah. uh, for things we could volunteer for. I didn't want to volunteer oh. for any of them. 
What were your three options? I remember I chose. So it was. It was in, so my. Uh, uh, there was the. Uh, there was the. We could volunteer for the city of Waterville, mm-hmm. uh, to, doing park cleanup. I don't remember. I don't remember what the other one was. But I chose. Uh, there was a community college called Thomas College. Uh, we could help them out. My parents were uh, professors at Colby College, which is the much fancier college in in Waterville. Right. Uh, Thomas is um, uh, the the kids that go there. It's a great school. Um, in particular, they I believe they have a hundred percent employment rate for their graduates, right. um, which is great for a, a local community college. Uh, and I had, uh, I was aware of my own privilege, I think, uh, and particularly uh, you know I have some privilege from uh, my family is uh, somewhat wealthy, mm-hmm. uh, but I also had a lot of privilege from Colby. Mm-hmm. Uh, they offer a lot of stuff uh, to, to not just to their faculty and the people who work there, but their children uh, of their faculty. Later, they paid for me to go to Dickinson College, oh, wow. uh, which is not inexpensive. That's awesome. Um, and uh, I, uh, I, it seemed that uh, Thomas College was the right place for me to go to interview. Uh, and I remember when we got there, uh, no one had really told Thomas. They didn't have a very good, um, they didn't know what they wanted us to do. So we moved a cord of wood about 20 feet. I, I don't understand what that <laughs> means. You were from Los Angeles, a cord of wood. <laughs> I, I, I have no idea what you just said. In, the, in order to survive the winter, we burn wood to stay warm. Uh, like back in the caveman days. No, you still. Okay, I was. Uh, ga- ga- one, gas isn't. You can't 100% guarantee that it's going to work uh, every single time. Sure. And if it doesn't work, you freeze to death. So uh, we tend to keep a lot of firewood around. Uh, and a place like Thomas uh, had, had a lot. So a quarter of wood is, I forget exactly the measurements, but it's a huge pile of wood. <laughs> and we, and like, I think they wanted it 20, a little bit closer to the building. And so we moved it about 20 feet. Um, unsupervised. I remember uh, Jason George threw a piece of wood at me uh-huh. uh, and uh, got me pretty good. <laughs> got me pretty good. Uh, you know, I just uh, gave me uh, give me right in the face. Give me a pretty good. I don't know if you have ever been hit by a. No. <laughs> um, it sounds like a, a good friend. Well, and I could think you know things like that. The, I think the the lesson here: forced <laughs> volunteering, right. especially for folks in that age group, probably not the best way to. Uh, engender, you know, a lifelong, uh, a life of service, right? Yeah. Uh, do you remember the first time that you gave anything? And this can, I'll be pretty broad with this, right? It can be uh, a, Chris, a lot of folks that I've asked this question to, it's been a Christmas gift. Uh, but the first time that you've given something to somebody else because you wanted to. Oh, man. Don't make me sound like such a horrible person. I can't. <laughs> I really, I mean, I don't want to paint myself as someone who is terrible and never gave anything. I, I No, I, I can't remember the first time I, I gave perhaps a, a birthday gift sure <laughs> I, I don't find that as a, as a very powerful story not only that I, I think when I was a little kid and went to the store or, or went to birthday parties the gift my parents usually got the gift or my mother got the gift it wasn't like mm-hmm. oh Bobby really loves fire trucks I think he'd love this fire truck mm-hmm. um, yeah wow I don't know what to, I, I don't know how to answer that yeah, it's t- <laughs> I didn't think it would be that tough. <laughs> this is a hard. I ask everybody this question, and everybody has a hard time with it. Just yeah, if they're honest. Right. Yeah, um, maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah. I, and actually, yeah, some people do like they 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 think they take it as an opportunity to tell a story that makes them look very good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I usually interrupt them and be like, "No, that please tell me the real story of the first thing." <laughs> right. It's almost. I mean, you you know, um, for some folks, you know, they volunteer. They they decide they chose to go volunteer somewhere, or they or a lot honestly lots of times I saved my allowance to buy a Christmas gift for my parents I mean uh, I'll tell you my the, the, the thing for me I uh, I saved up some money and uh, and I bought a, a Hanukkah gift for my uh, for my mother wow. uh, which <laughs> I bought her sterling uh, dangly sterling sterling silver earrings um, which was I don't know a nice thought I think I was just like I'll get her some jewelry right it didn't occur to me to think like what kind of jewelry she likes to wear um, I've gotten better at uh, identifying her style, but she—I'm pretty sure she never wore, never, not even to humor me, sure. wore those earrings. Uh, it's, it's the thought that counts in theory. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I found uh, old cards that I wrote to my mom and dad, like on their birthday and stuff. So I think that's mm-hmm. that's as good as I can make myself seem. I think. <laughs> um, uh, that's fine. Uh, so uh, shortly after your forced uh, volunteer experience, you yes. went to Hampshire College. I did in uh, New England. Uh, not, yeah. not that far from, uh, so I went to boarding school, not that far away, and um, and honestly, it's not that. It's only about four hours from where I grew up in Maine. Got it. Uh, where exactly in Massachusetts is Amherst? Is there? Yeah, yeah. Sure thing. So I also lived in Putney, Vermont, uh, for a year, which is probably about half an hour north. Oh, I don't get um, completely. On like I ninety one or whatever. I knew I knew Boston and I knew Connecticut because of Hartford, and that's I mean, 
Mm-hmm. And I knew Gloucester because I, I got I, I scooped. If you got lost, there. oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, when, if you there's this place where if you want to go to Maine, uh, you need to make a turn off of 95, and if you don't, you end up in Gloucester. Oh, I know. And so I've ended up in Gloucester like two or three times. <laughs> it's very nice. It's the only time I've ever been to. Like, you're zoned down on the highway, and eventually you just, oh, I'm in Gloucester. I <laughs> forgot to make that turn. Awesome. <laughs> uh, why did you go to, to Hampshire College? So I wasn't really the best student. Um, I didn't do well in the traditional structured environment. Uh, I, I was, you know, at a young age, um, I, I was more interested in social life than, than whatever, cars and girls and, and all that stuff. Uh, it wasn't until uh, my junior and senior year that I started to buckle down, as my father might say. It was also when my father passed away, but I... I started to see a little bit of the value in, I use the word, I'll use the word education, I guess, but in getting some sort of education. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also inspired by a astrophysicist by the name of uh, Sally Balunas. Um, she ran what's called the HK Project at the Mount Wilson Observatory. My, uh, my father had met her, and my mother and father brought home a Celestron 8-inch tele- telescope for me. And not because I was interested in astronomy. Astronomy was probably the first class I ever took that I really enjoyed and did well at. And, you know, it's, it's the 101 style, but it was so neat to hear that it takes 109 Earths to go is across the diameter of the sun. And, and these sorts of, like, broad facts that blew my mind. And uh, I, I did well in that cra- class, and they, they brought home a telescope, and they had Sally, an astrophysicist from the Harvard-Smithsonian, uh, teach me how to use it. And then she offered me a job working in Mount Wilson, as a telescope operator. And so I spent one of my summers doing that, doing a terrible job, because summer was a time to play. Mm-hmm. So yep. I would stay up all night operating the telescope, then I'd go out and play, and I burnt out in like a week and a half. But uh, anyhow, <laughs> Hampshire was a very non-traditional school. Mm. And we had college advisors at our high school, and they kind of put that in front of me, as well as like Emerson and a couple others that were that were more liberal arts-ish. And... Um, I, 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 they didn't have tests or grades, and I didn't test well, and my grades weren't great, but they were getting better, and I, it just appealed to me. I also wanted to get away from home. <coughs> I'm an athlete. Sure thing. What's your editor's name? <laughs> David. David, sorry. <laughs> Both Davids. Oh, he'll be, this is easy to handle. Okay. <coughs> <coughs> So I really just wanted to get away from home also. And it, it was just the right time. High school was ending. My father had passed. I, I was <coughs> trying to figure out who the fuck I was. Can we swear? Yeah, please. Okay. <laughs> trying to find out who the fuck I was, which I'm still Allow you your out. full range of okay. communication here. I don't um, think a lot of children listen to my philanthropy podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I, I went there for that reason, essentially. Uh, at, uh, did your, uh, your folks have a problem with you going that far away? I was not allowed to even consider schools outside of New England. But part of that's because my parents are New England elitists. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> and I actually, I broke the rule. I went to school in Pennsylvania, which was oh, that's... as far away as I was allowed, more or less. Well, some distance. It's, it's good it's pretty far away. to have it's some distance, in my opinion. It's yeah. as far away from home as I'd ever been at the time. Yeah. Well, um, I, no, I mean, my mother wanted me to go to, like, UCLA. I, I think... I don't know. If, I'm pretty sure I couldn't have gotten into UCLA, but with her losing her husband and all that, I'm sure she wanted me somewhere close. But I was very selfish and wanted to do my own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so uh, when I um, I mentioned that uh, my father is a, uh, a U.S. history professor, mm-hmm. um, and uh, when I was asking him about um, in particular the and he, he studies the 20th century uh, cultural phenomenons and communities and things of that nature, and I was asking him about television around the time that Star Trek originally came out. Uh, and one of the things that he was interested to talk to me about was uh, Norman Lear, because he had been uh, recently honored uh, mm-hmm. at the Kennedy Center. Uh, and um, I think probably the only person comparable to your father in terms of mm-hmm. output, and uh, especially at that time as, mm-hmm. a, as a TV producer. Um, even lay people who don't know that much about philanthropy know that Norman Lear was quite philanthropic and can probably tell you uh, the nature of what he supports. And he's still doing so. I mean, I think he... I think he said he wouldn't have gone to the Kennedy Center Honors if, if Trump had attended, um, which makes which makes absolute. I wouldn't have expected anything else from him. Yeah. Uh, I did uh, early in my career. Uh, I worked for a consultant who had uh, people for the American Way as a client, uh, so I'm uh, pretty familiar with what they do. Uh, but uh, the the point I'm trying to make is, um, um, while even regular folks will know about his philanthropy, I don't 
I, I and I know I myself know a lot about the history of philanthropy. I don't know that much about your father's giving or his. I mean, I can surmise what his beliefs were from the what he produced, uh, but I don't have other evidence that I, I, I could find out. Was, was he philanthropic at all? You know, I, I don't. I can't say for certain. I can say for certain that uh, I, I, the question is, I don't know. I don't remember my parents. <clears throat> They were philanthropic in the sense that if there was something that appealed to them, my mother loved animals, hmm. so she she always wanted to start start a large cat sanctuary. And Tippy Hedren, I think, is a lady who did that as well. And uh, but my mother was kind of the crazy cat lady in a way. And when I say crazy cat lady, we're talking uh, Siamese to tigers and all that. I mean, we had. Did you smaller. own a tiger? We did not own a tiger. <laughs> I'm just saying my mother had the same passion. I think if she's she there is a story. Do. Here's a fun story. <laughs> Great. And it's been a while. When my mother was pregnant, there, someone owned a large cat. And I'm not going to say jaguar, cougar, but it wasn't a Siamese cat. It was a large cat. An atypical cat. cat. And it was, in, it was in Beverly Hills where we lived. And apparently, we were coming home from dinner. My, my mother was pregnant. Uh, somehow, I, someone else tells the story better. The cat had gotten out, and my mother went out looking for it. <laughs> pregnant with me. Really? I don't think she ever found it, but I mean, that's, so my mother loved cats, and huh. I would say crazy cat lady in a, in a passionate sort of way. And she supported that, um, that vegan, that animal rights. There, there was an animal dinner. rights vegan dinner that she supported too. Um, hmm. I, you know, I think the philanthropic side of my family, if I don't think you can use the word, is just through Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, just that, that idea of a better future. So while I don't want to say they weren't, philanthropic i am completely unaware of them there was there was never a foundation a roddenberry foundation before now or before recently and uh if they there were things they were passionate about they support it my father was a a member of the um police marching band committee because he was was he had been an officer i learned that so i know they supported that they supported things that they kind of knew and and liked but Mm -hmm. but the cats are also part of the story about how the foundation started Sure. Which uh, is kind of an interesting... So my mother wanted to start call, something called the Gene Roddenberry Animal Sanctuary, Grass. And it was for large cats. And This is after Gene had passed away. It was after, yes. Sure. Yes. And uh, she wanted to have a farm with lions and tigers and... Not bears, but oh my. In L.A. In L.A. And it, the, the, the logistics and the reality of it just weren't possible. Um you can't just feed them a bowl of, of tiger chow. Uh, they have to have meat, and sometimes it's horses. It has to be large. Probably a large amount of. This is a big and animal. She loved all animals, so she didn't want to like kill horses to feed tigers. And it was just sort of this internal, ongoing joke in our family. <laughs> I will. She will do the Gene Roddenberry Animal Sanctuary. Animal Sanctuary. I will do the Gene Roddenberry Chicken Sanctuary, and I will throw chickens over to the tigers. You know, every time I'm there, it was. That's not a fun joke, but that's my <laughs> yeah. um, Am I allowed to ask a question? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, please. You can, if you want to, yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm just curious, what do you think your dad would think about the, what we're doing at the foundation now? Oh, I think he'd be blown away. This is, in fact, my, the, you were, you're very good <laughs> did at I this. Just, did I jump? This is actually the, literally the next, the second, the next question that I have. My bad. It, I phrased it a little bit. No, it's fine. We got a great transition. Um, the, uh, yeah, but, um, so, uh, is the foundation still supporting cats or animals mm-hmm. or, uh, not, not specifically animals, uh, but I think... Uh, well, yeah. Wild aid. Wild Yeah, it's not the core. Um, we, we support a broad number of things, and, and when you talk to uh, our lovely president and my wonderful wife, Heidi, she can get into that, and Lior can get into more of that. Mm-hmm. But, um, no, in, in terms of my father... You know, I wonder if my... <laughs> my father was a philosopher, more than a writer, more than a producer certainly more than a philanthropist, um, and, and that's what he really loved doing, ideas and, and talking about people, and, and whether it's politics, drugs, sex, uh, war, he, he liked going into the absurdities of that, and, and what it was like 50 years ago, and what it would be like 50 years from now, and, and how absurd it is the way we look at things now, and mm. how our perspectives, I'm sure, will be very different 50 years from now, mm-hmm. or 100 years from now, and he really loved challenging people uh, uh, with those ideas. Um, yeah, he'd always sort of take the extreme, not simply to raise eyebrows, but to get people to think. 
outside the norm. I do think that there is a lot of ways that we can be philanthropic beyond uh, writing, sure. writing checks. That, bro- that word can have a very broad meaning. So, and, and in particular, I mean, so you can make a gift. Uh, you could write checks to, to try to save the whales. Yeah. Uh, or you could you know, make a popular feature film about saving the whales. Yeah. Uh, and I think we probably need both things. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, money can do stuff that a film about whales can't. Uh, and a film about whales yep. can do things that, that, that money can't. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And even science fiction can... Mm-hmm. as well. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. We, we, there was a movie, Star Trek IV, right? I'm mm-hmm. not sure how many whales it saved, but at least the message kind of went out there. They uh, in, the, in the movie, they saved two. Well, they saved two, <laughs> but you know they talk about a future where there are no more... Yeah, there were no... Yeah, I mean, right? I think that's... And it's very it. interesting to me because uh, a lot of Star Trek is about a future where we've solved poverty or mm-hmm. there's no more greed on Earth, right? Uh, but that it was an episode where, you know, we, we ended up... Uh, putting this beautiful species out of existence. Well, because our, our barbaric selves of today mm-hmm. were too naive and, and dumb to mm-hmm. not have that, <laughs> that idea. That we, uh, is that, I don't know much about whales, does that whale, uh, what's that whale situation? Was that the humpback whale in that movie? Oh, well, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, humpback whale. Uh, I, uh, when I was um, uh, reading about you, I, uh, I, I noticed that uh, you do share something in common with uh, Dr. Stone. You uh, dive a lot and clearly are interested in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me, uh, tell me about the Roddenberry dive team. I know that it exists. I couldn't really figure out what it was. I've never, uh, I mean, I've been underwater before, but I've never actually dove or done anything of that sort. Um, well, it just came from my passion for diving. I got certified in '93. I, 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 I love the ocean. I love the feeling, and you can make all the comparisons of being in zero g. I love the idea that we're exploring strange new worlds. I mean, I, th- there's this perfect parallel between Star Trek and scuba diving, and it's not that I'm a fanatic per se, about Star Trek. It's just that in my life, those are two big things, and they go hand in hand. So mm-hmm. I get to explore. I get to see crazy alien life forms. I'm a fish out of water, whatever the inverse of that is. I'm a human in water. Um, <laughs> but for me, it's, it's my place of zen. I'm not spiritual. I'm not religious. But when I get underwater, it's like my heart rate drops. I just I relax. I could sleep. I could... Wh- whatever is spiritual about it, I, that, that would be my spiritual place. So hmm. I just... Love being in the ocean. I love seeing everything. I love the exploration. I've had every experience from fear to complete exhilaration. Um, I feel a lot. So. Um, and one of the things that's so amazing about Rod is that he wants to share that with others. Mm-hmm. And so the team concept came from the idea of almost addressing fans, that the idea of, of all the beauty that he sees and the wonder that he experiences underwater wanted other people to experience that and especially it, it they can go into the ocean way more easily than they can get into space right so in, so instead of sitting there and, and passively watching what happens underwater he put a team together and said like come on let's go let's go diving uh, this is a great segue to my uh to my next question uh i was at i'm pretty sure it was the social good summit several years ago and i saw a really interesting presentation the theme of which was uh, oceans versus space uh and it was about uh, you know where sh- generally where should funding go uh and i've always been uh, i like the ocean uh, um uh, grew up in maine we have a we have a lot of ocean up there um and uh, but um yeah i think I, uh, uh, for me up until that point you know i was if we're going to spend money uh, searching you know going to the stars and stuff that um, was definitely caught my interest a lot more uh but this presentation really got me thinking right that the, the uh, we have not fully explored even a little bit of the ocean, uh, more or less. Uh, and why would we, you know, why go to Mars when uh, far more easily accessible stuff is in there? Yeah. Uh, and it was, they did a fun little activity. There was one guy in a t-shirt that said Team Ocean uh, and, and Team Space. And they, I think they had to stand up or clap, like, where, you know, where he wanted to do one. Um, so you mentioned you, you clearly like the ocean, but you also mentioned you really like astronomy class. Um, what's the, you know, what just the simple answer, oceans or, oceans or space? I mean... Simple answer is oceans, mm-hmm. and I, I don't want to. I don't want to get all preachy. I mean, we just we need it more right now, and mm-hmm. space will be there. And mm-hmm. I would make the argument that, uh, especially looking at some of our political systems right now, and where we are mm-hmm. in the world, and what's going on, I, I don't know if we deserve to go into space and, and meet life forms. I, I would. People say, "Why haven't we met life?" Well, I think they're keeping their distance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I uh, think yeah, they're definitely staying away from us, and yeah. I think that's a good thing. What's right appealing now. about us? 
<laughs> I think there's tons appealing about us, but I would be very scared of us right now. Uh, it's accessible. You can watch our television programs and stuff without actually coming down here and talking to us. We actually have a cartoon. Uh, the Ron Entertainment has a cartoon called Roddenberry, where two aliens get our radio waves and they, they yeah. speak out on our pop, pop culture. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know the, several things we've done as humans, Shakespeare, Star Trek, lots of stuff, would probably be of, of great interest uh, to the planet. Cool. And in particular, there is a, there's a really cool under, uh, episode, I think it's of Enterprise, um, where one of the first races they meet, um, the they're, these are really really smart people, right? And the guy meets them, and then and overnight he reads all the Shakespeare, and he wants to talk like all of it, the entire oh, catalog, cool. and he wants to talk about it with the captain, and the, the very next day, um, which is very interesting to me. Uh, there does seem to be a lot of uh, the Shakespeare, um, Star Trek connection, uh, which is actually not a question I've written down, but I don't have any. You don't have any thoughts on that? Okay. No, and, and for any listeners, you know, I, I'm, I'm the son of Gene Roddenberry, and, you know, I was born in 74, Star Trek came out in 66, and I wasn't really around for any of its creation, um, and, you know, my, my involvement was a, a, PA, a PA production assistant on The Next Generation when I was 13, hmm. and little run-ins here and there. How did you get that job? Oh, <laughs> I knew, I knew a, a guy. <laughs> you knew I someone? Knew, I knew a guy at the top. That's how it works in this town. That's how I understand. Sadly, um, <laughs> often that's how it works, and that's one of the, the issues I think I have with Hollywood. There's tremendous talent oh. outside of Hollywood. There's probably a lot of people that wanted that job. Well, there are a lot of people who wanted that job, and I certainly didn't want it as a 13-year-old during the summer. <laughs> um, but there's just a lot of talent out there who, who mm -hmm. they don't have a famous last name. They don't know someone. They don't live in L.A., uh, mm -hmm. The good news is, is that the fact, you know, whether it's YouTube or Hulu, whatever, people can create their own content these days, mm -hmm. and it's getting better and better and better. Uh, so, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was in an independent film a couple summers ago. It's called okay. Live a Little. I'll okay. plug it briefly right now. It's now available for free on Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, uh, you know, probably just 10 years ago, it would have been a movie that no one ever saw. Right. Uh, we would have gone to some festivals, right. and then nobody nobody's ever seen it. Uh, and uh, who, I don't know that it necessarily will be seen now, but it's at least it's an option for folks. Right. Uh, I did want to pop back to Ocean in Space. He did answer please. Ocean, but if he had a chance to go into space, <laughs> he would be on it in a millisecond. Sure, yeah, so I'd absolutely go. I, I, that, we sailed by that, and I was like, whoa, hold on. Mm. Like, this man really is. Like, when it comes to the funding exploration thereof, though, mm. we agree. Ocean. We at least explore the, and then and then space, though. Sure. And, and, but maybe fix some stuff about the some other stuff about the planet. Oh yeah. <laughs> what's, what's interesting to me is when when Rob and I first got together, I got a big dose of space stuff from the the get go, and one of the first things we went to, I think it was a Yuri's night, mm -hmm. and the person that was up there was drumming up support for space exploration, but the way that it was presented was, you know, we're messing things up. We got to get you know going <laughs> to the new place which I thought was the saddest mm. positioning of why we go into space. So, yes. so together, we were definitely much more terrestrial, right? We wanted to stay on Earth. Let's fix Earth. Let's, we, gotta, we can't let this go. Yet, over in the last few years, having spent more time at JPL and NASA and understanding a lot more of what they're doing, I now understand that some of the technologies that are necessary to survive in space really can come back and innovate the systems that we have going on here. Hmm. Which well, I that's very interesting. Exactly. I hadn't considered that before. One of the projects that we looked at was um, a sanitation, improving sanitation, and we, we codenamed it the Super Pooper. But the idea was to take any organic matter... Oh, can you repeat the code name, please? <laughs> the Super Pooper. Thank, thank you. Yes, that was definitely what I said. <laughs> and we would take all organic matter and have um, microbes break that down and convert it to water and energy. It seemed like a perfect solution. They absolutely need to do that for astronauts. Mm -hmm. And I just found out recently that the first astronauts that went up there, do you know what they gave them? Essentially diapers. Mm. They didn't know what the heck to do. Well, yeah, I think it's still a thing. Sorry, astronauts. But... Right, so once we figure, like, yeah. they really need to figure it if, out. If I remember correctly, there's about a billion people on the planet right now that don't have access to a toilet. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to have access to a toilet in space, so if we can solve that problem for space, uh, then we would also be solving it for, for lots of things. That's interesting. Yeah, so I wanted to bring that up because that's a nuance that I myself hadn't considered. And then, and I love the ocean, and, and, and there's lots to learn from the ocean as well. Don't get me wrong. I think Craig Venter went around sampling... Mm -hmm 
microbes that are all over the ocean, and it's almost akin to going to the Amazon rainforest and finding out new species and new methods, or uh, sorry, new medicines and remedies. So there's a lot that comes from the ocean as well, but I did want to make a plug that there is value in figuring out how to survive outside of the planet that can help the planet. Mm -hmm. um, I think um, that's very interesting, but I also find it interesting what you said right before that. Uh, if if we if when we eventually go to space, it is because we need more resources. I think that'll be a really big that that's the wrong reason. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, if we're going there because we think we have something to offer the rest of the universe, then then, then that'll be great. Um, the um, so there's a, a, a couple things. Uh, I have uh, two very long questions, and I'm going to try to uh, combine them and, and paraphrase them a little bit. Um, but there, um, but there's a number of reasons why uh, people make large grants or, or make gifts at all. Uh, one of the biggest reasons is is religious giving. I have a stat here: um, seventy percent of all giving in the U.S. goes to religious institutions. Oh my God! Uh, oh my. I and, and I just said, oh, my God, I'm yeah. an atheist, but oh, my God. Mm -hmm. I actually, I say, oh, my God, all I the time. I should just say, holy I say, shit. I say Jesus, Jesus all the time, right? I'm Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, like, I don't know, I picked it up on TV you know, or whatever. It's funny. It doesn't wow. necessarily surprise me because when you were asking questions about <coughs> the first charitable act that you've done, mm -hmm. the first thing I thought of was... Alms or something? Well, it, or the, it, whatever the collection plate is called. Yeah, well, not necessarily tithing, but if you're in if you, if you're in a church community, that's where I've seen it modeled youngest. Please don't do that. Sorry. Not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, at, in a church, mm -hmm. the the church community, that's where I feel that young children see the first giving opportunity mm -hmm. and, and are involved in something. Uh, yeah, absolutely, uh, and a lot, a lot of the folks I ask, it is you know, some there's some sort of religious backstory to it. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't grow up with a, a ton of uh, Jewish education because I was in Maine. Uh, do you need to? Okay, um, so there weren't a lot of Jews around. It was a, we did have a temple in our town, but um, it was conservative. And <laughs> there's a, a joke in the Jewish community that every town has to have two temples: one that you go to, and one that you would never go to. Otherwise, you can't go at all. And we only had one, so we couldn't. None of us. <laughs> um, but um, so there's uh, I think there's there's pros and cons to that much giving being religious one mm -hmm. it is a really good way to teach young people about giving assuming that that's what they're doing mm -hmm. and I'm not saying they're not I'm just saying it's not the best way but I, 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 it's not the best possible way I think it's the best current way that we teach young people about giving back and sure. uh, and these sorts sure. of things uh, we do a really good job of getting them all the different faiths give them in their young um, in the in the Jewish community, the, uh, uh, at your bar mitzvah, you're almost always encouraged to raise some money and, and give a gift. Uh, I was I got some bar mitzvah money, and I was uh, encouraged to be quite generous with it, uh, which was the beginning of my. I like to joke I'm the original millennial philanthropist because um, I, I made a I made a, a five figure gift in 1994, wow. and if Mark Zuckerberg can prove <laughs> that he can beat that, then uh, then I'll I'll give it to him. But um, wow. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we are. Uh, I got started very early with this stuff. Uh, another, uh, so one of the things that concerns me about philanthropy, and I want to hear. Um, I'd like to hear both uh, Heidi and Rod uh, talk about this, uh, and uh, and uh, Leora as well. If you want to jump in, the um, uh, well, I think uh, 100 years ago, um, pro pretty much all giving was was uh, entirely religious, uh, and um, we've. Uh, uh, I think now there's some there's some secular giving. Uh, there is uh, one of the newest trends that that, that concerns me the most is uh, is corporate giving. Uh, 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 yeah, oh, yeah, quite a bit. Um, one, it's uh, it's um, it has an outsized reputation. Uh, a lot of the uh, the folks that send proposals to me at the unfunded list uh, have applied for money or are trying to partner with some sort of corporate entity. And one of the things I notice consistently is that they really do not understand uh, that uh, more or less corporations don't really do philanthropy. Uh, it's basically the opposite of what a corporation set up to do. Right, they're, they're to make money, not give money away. When they give money away, it is in service of their of their bottom line. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my least favorite phrases is double bottom line. It's it, one. It's not possible. That's not what bottom means. Mm -hmm. If there's a line below it, that's the bottom line. <laughs> uh, and I think there are lots of ways that can, this can be very good, right? If the cause can help sell that product, right? But there are uh, there are causes out there that can't help sell any products, right. and that there there might be some corporations out there that need to be shut down. Uh, through and philanthropy might need to play a role in that. And as uh, and I think. Um, religious philanthropy is unlikely to do that kind of activism. I think um, the only thing less likely to do anti-corporate activism is 
corporations themselves. Uh, and you know, if we, I, I worry about a world where, right? If we, let's say we, let's say religion falls by the wayside, and then over the next two centuries, uh, and the corporations pick up all of philanthropy, and they're the ones who decide uh, what, because um, they don't necessarily give to these things, uh, but where they're very powerful, they can raise um, the awareness of certain causes. Um, just uh, some quick numbers: um, foundations give about sixty billion every year, corporations fifteen billion. Individuals like three hundred and seventy billion. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, it's uh, and I th- and and hardly anybody. I tell I like to tell everybody that. Uh, I don't want to assume they know it because almost every time I tell people that, they're, they're really surprised to hear yeah. those figures. Uh, particular fundraisers, they just don't know where the pile, where the where these piles of money are. Um, individuals, by far, is your best source of of income. They're the easiest people to raise money from. If you lose one individual, it's easy to find another one, right? Whereas, um, right, for certain folks uh, in certain issue areas, there's only like two or three foundations that are going to fund that. Uh, and if you upset the wrong people there, then you're, that's it. That's the end of you and the good work that you're doing on your cause. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, with, uh, with, with corporate philanthropy, uh, you could possibly upset an individual or whatever, but you could also just become, right, you're not helping them sell their product anymore. They're going to stop. Because um, right now, for a lot of them, it's easier. So when Star Trek went, first went on the air, uh, it was um, right. There was no Netflix. There was no. There was no other things like that. It had to be supported by advertising from large companies, yeah. Procter and Gamble, yeah. uh, right? Cigarettes uh, and booze. Yeah, because back then you could go out. If someone, a, a representative from Procter and Gamble, could come out and say, "Hello, I'm a, a corporate man, and these are our products that we sell, and you trust me because we are a well-known company, and you should buy my products." And th- those commercials worked. Uh, you obviously can't do something like that. So they've all they've all had to get a lot cleverer. And somewhere along the line, they found out that. You can basically use your advertising dollars to get far cheaper advertising by supporting certain causes. If it right when there's synergy, um, and uh, some of it's good, it could end up being good. Um, but I, I think um, one of the questions I ask myself when I'm doing due diligence on a, uh, a new nonprofit, uh, and this is I'm not just saying this because because I wear am. This really is a question I ask myself. Uh, I call it the Star Trek question, uh, and I say is this, a, is this is this a nonprofit that's ameliorating? That's my diplomatic term for Band-Aid solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, or is this a nonprofit that will help us get to the first episode of Star Trek? Right. Uh, and I don't encounter a lot that are Star Trek nonprofits. Um, because that's, uh, it's, I mean, one, it's a, little, it's a little pie in the sky, which makes it hard to get funding for. Um, and, uh, uh, I don't, but, it, uh, but for me, that's what I'm interested in. Uh, and another way to phrase that is, like, are they solving problems? Right? Yeah. That's, what I, and I, that's, what I, that's what I really, really look for. Um, well, if you want, I mean, just quickly would love to get into a little bit of the background of Foundation and then actually hand it over to the people next to me who can speak much more. Although before, there's a really cool story about your dad, speaking of advertising, they really wanted, didn't they want Kirk to be smoking? Yeah, they wanted cigarettes on the Enterprise, and my father said no, we'll, we'll, that, that, that's an absurd thing. No one will be smoking. In, in the they obviously won't be smoking, sense. but yeah. and that was the reason why. Because he, he smoked, and he knew how bad it was for him and how stupid it was and how we as human beings just won't need to have that sort of uh, um, um, fake uh, need for, for, for yeah, that, that crutch, that, that mm-hmm. need for sensation in the future because we'll, we will be better people by then. And, you know, we so won't now. need to take the edge off of the cigarette because... Life will be better for all of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he said no to uh, advertise, or at least no to having cigarettes on the show, which ruffled a lot of feathers. Uh, yeah, um, one of the things that's always interesting to me when you watch older movies and stuff is how often you see cigarettes on the right. screen. And now I don't think anybody's making anything where anybody smokes. If they are, that's a bad, undesirable yeah, character. It's, <laughs> it's never like the one that you want to be, right? It never makes yeah. you look that cool. I can tell you, when I, I I smoked for about ten years, and it, it sure did look cool to me when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I think that was a, that. What do you? I mean, uh, what do you think about that? I think my thought is, if he'd decided to have, if Kirk was smoking cigarettes, uh, I I don't know that it would have gone as as far as it did. I wonder. I have no idea. Because uh, you're right. I mean, this was one of the things that makes it stand out from uh, other science fiction and almost everything else is, right? That it was about a better world in the future, mm-hmm. right? One where we where we don't have a crutch like cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And this is one that we actually more or less have have moved past. I remember when I moved to D.C. People smoking cigarettes. We had ashtrays on the street, and people smoking cigarettes everywhere, right? Even in the you used to be able to smoke in the bar, right? I can't. That's so weird to think about. Uh, and oh yeah, I used to, at the airport there was there would be a smoking room, and when I was a little kid, 
I do brief, I kind of remember people smoking them on airplanes. And certainly I remember there being um, ashtrays. That's right. Because uh, a long time after you couldn't smoke, there were right. still ashtrays. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's very, that's uh, that's that's very interesting. Um, so uh, the uh, I'm I'm interested to know um, right, which uh, your thoughts on um, the role that advertisers play, um, you know, in the work you do. They made more or less all of this possible. Um, if it weren't for advertisers, and you um, you would not have the resources that required to run this foundation. Sure, it's a long yes. path to make. They yes, they, but. With, but without that, we need to, the revenue has to come from somewhere. Sure. Um, and, um, and if it wasn't for the Baptist Church, my father probably wouldn't have been inspired to go and think about the world in the way he did. Mm-hmm. Is, I, it, is that? Uh, uh, he's... I, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating. Your point's 100% dead on. And I was, <laughs> I was going back even further saying, yeah, what? But was he what raised? Inspired he was dad? raised in the Baptist Church? Yeah, his, 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 his parents were. And that was his introduction to religion. And It didn't yeah. take? From Texas. Yeah, there's a great um, there's a great interview by Terrence Sweeney and a great interview in the Humanist magazine, and it's my father who talks about his thoughts on religion, and it, it, it's actually pretty interesting. It's not as as, uh, as um, he, he talks about it fairly openly and, and, huh. and what made sense and didn't make sense, and his concept of God towards the end of his life and what God could be or might be. It's it was it's a very interesting article. That is interesting. Mark, yeah. The um... Uh, I've, I, I read a few places that he was, you know, a, a couple different things that, that claimed he was an atheist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for all I know, he identified that way. Uh, I don't, I mean, I never met him, obviously. Uh, but Humanist I, was the more public term. I think the person that created that show and, and a lot of those episodes must have had, like, I don't think, I'm sure he didn't believe in, like, a god with a beard that, that makes commandments, but, uh, you know, there was a lot of heavy spiritual stuff. Um, it's interesting that you say that. So, yeah, I... I, I it was all, I mean, when I see it, it's about false gods. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That's one way to get at the truth, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is very interesting. Uh, I have just a, a couple more questions for you, then we go to Heidi's questions, and then finally, uh, there are <laughs> some, Least some interesting questions. Least yeah. interesting. Oh, for shit. You're going to get all the good stuff. It'll be very days. interesting. Pardon my language. Well, um, so, uh, one of, as far as I can tell, one of the uh, larger gifts that you made originally was uh, to support uh, some sort of, I meant to write the name of it down, but a stem cell research facility of some sort? Yeah, uh, so... so uh, we still do. Yeah. You st- yeah um, I was... Um, so, uh, one, as I, uh, is my correct, it was a $5 million gift. Yeah. Was this one of your first large... That was our first... I think that was our very first mm-hmm. large one. Um, In my entire life, I've given away about $5 million. Well, we, we uh, our, our, I guess, our endowment, we, we've kind of got that. And I'm yeah. very proud of that. I brag yeah. about it. I and... <laughs> it, is, it is spectacular. Whatever people do, why they give it spectacular. Uh, why did you choose uh, stem cell research? So there's there's four board members uh, on on the foundation. The start off is three. It was myself, uh, Mort Kessler, who's been sort of a uh, our, our accountant business manager and sort of a father figure to me since my father passed away, and Andy Garb, who... Uh, who was our, our estate lawyer, attorney, who also sort of became a close friend of the family. And these are the two people that I really trusted. And when my mother passed away, they sort of let me know there was uh, there was money there that, that something could be done with. And, and if not, it would have to be given all to the government. It seemed that way or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I had a similar conversation with an accountant once. Did you? And so <laughs> the options were thrown out what to do with it. And... And foundation, which I had no idea what it meant, but I mean, it sounded most interesting. Um, and so we decided to form a foundation. And then, uh, what was interesting to you? The tax benefits or the? I don't think the tax benefits. I love the idea since I'm not a, a Hollywood producer kind of person, or at least I don't consider myself to be. I don't create movies or anything like that. Um, it would be neat when we found out where we could give money mm-hmm. to, to have that. So going kind of the direction you're talking about, I think we're all selfish, fundamentally. Even if we're philanthropists, mm-hmm. we do things for ourselves kind of no matter what. Even if we're giving our own money away to someone, it makes us feel good. I'm not saying that's the only reason, but I think behind everything, we do things because they feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it, it felt good to think, and, and I don't know if it's good or, or power or maybe the way that I could uh, carry on my father's vision or, or what I thought to be a better future. I wasn't good in Hollywood, so maybe I could do it with philanthropy. Um, again, I still didn't know what I was doing, but it seemed like the best option out of all of them. And uh, 
moving all the way up to the foundation, uh, excuse me, moving all the way to um, Gladstone Institute, um, well, we brought Heidi on board because, oh, it's, I don't even know where to go with this. So when I met Heidi, when I fell in love with Heidi, she she wasn't really a Star Trek fan. It's not like I met her at a convention. You keep saying that. Why do you say that? Because I didn't not meet true. you at a Star Trek convention and well, wearing okay. ears. You and your father, you watched it, but we did we we didn't meet under any context of Star Trek. I mean, there was nothing about Star Trek in it. We met at college. Um, she's she's lived all over the world. She's traveled the world. She's she's got great perspective on what it is to live in other places, and of course, what it means to be an American, which I take for granted. Um, and and was able to share sort of the beauty of this global perspective, which I think I got a little bit up through Star Trek, because Star Trek talked about a united. Uh, Federation of Planets for the United Earth, and, and we're no longer just America, but we're sort of a global society. And she came at it from a different angle, and and it, that resonated with me, and I loved it, and, and she was, we, we wanted her to be a part of the foundation, and so we brought her on, and, and she was so passionate about the foundation, and she was so passionate about giving and, and loving the world that, that we, we made her president, because she, in her heart, in her core, <coughs> without Star Trek, has that sort of Star Trek philosophy in her. So she, As I understand, women cannot be president. Well, that's right. This has been recently made clear to you, me. You are one hundred percent right. Only, only orange-haired individuals. Um, Fuck that. Yes. So, <laughs> even if we weren't allowed to swear, I would have let that one slip. <laughs> <laughs> so none of us knew what we were doing. Um, Andy Garb, one of our, our our board members, he's been working with the Gladstone Institute for years. He's been on their board. And we were all throwing out options. I was going to YouTube and, and TED, the TED videos, and saying like, oh, here's this water bottle where you can just put dirty water and squirt it and it's clean. We all looked at trying to support that. But we, that was the beginning. We were learning. You were watching random TED videos and considering making gifts? Yes, absolutely. And we were going to panels and seminars. And we were trying to find uh, the vertical farming. I, yeah. I, I learned about that in science fiction. And I found out people were doing it. I was like, let's do one of those. So it was it was, it was everything back then. Anything cool that was long-term visionary that would make the future a better place. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just throwing money. We did our due diligence and often found out, well, this is why we can't do it because it's not scalable or someone else is already doing it or whatever the case is. Mm -hmm. um, we decided early on that we wanted to give large gifts. We, we wanted it to... Well, be, not just little amounts everywhere. Right. And, and we wanted to be the most impactful change that we could to, to improve living, to help the world, and that would affect the most people. So we were, we were searching around for silver bullets for anything that would do the most good. And again, it was at the very beginning of the foundation, so we also had you know, a timeline to, to give some money away. Mm -hmm. So, so Andy brought in uh, the Gladstone, and we spent about nine months researching it. We went up there, we, we talked to all the scientists, we found sort of the the scientist who we thought was doing the most interesting work, which we learned about the pluripotent stem cells, which are different from the embryonic. Uh, and it was, and I'm, I'm speaking as if I know what I'm talking about, but I'm... Yeah, that was very impressive. It. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> as smart as I can. I, I, I went there, and they told us that they could take any cell from any adult male, female, whatever, and reverse engineer it into any other sort of cell in the body for the most part. That so sounds useful. We saw a, a, a sheet of heart cells that was beating, pulsating, that had been taken from an adult male skin cell. And that, the implications, the idea in terms of... You could see like a little sheet of cells? They, they showed us a video through like a microscope a of this sheet, single layer sheet of, of heart cells that was just kind of pulsating. Heart muscle. Heart the muscle. cells from heart muscle means that they contract. So it was... Crazy! We yeah. actually saw a petri dish came from an adult male. And these have just been cell. their skin. It's been somebody's skin. Yeah, yeah. So they they reprogram essentially. That's how they just pull it up. With it. Yeah. If you can see what she's doing right now, she's <laughs> showing the demonstrating the how they remove the. <laughs> <laughs> Watch this. Yeah. And that just blew us blew us away. Yeah, I can and, imagine. And we wanted to support them, so they became our first major grant. So people are are out there and they're trying to raise money. Just turn skin cells into heart cells and you'll probably be able to do it. Well, yeah. <laughs> there you go. There is more to it. <laughs> well, if I can quickly say, the, the thing that, that, that I was, there's the long term of like, oh, maybe they can make a heart one day or an organ or whatever. They, they told us that they can actually start testing like uh, drugs, like heart drugs. And, and if, you, if you have a heart condition or heart disease, there's, I don't know, hundreds of different kinds of heart medicine. 
and some might work for you, some might not, some might kill you, some might help you, mm-hmm. you could actually take these cells and, and test the drugs on each one of them and find the drug that's going to work best for your heart condition. And that was the more immediate thing oh, that wow. I thought, like, within the yeah. next, hopefully, decade, they can start doing that. And so I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. Uh, one of the things that we learned as young new philanthropists as well is we, we really spent a lot of time speaking with the Gladstone Institute about what the gift would look like. And, and interestingly, one quick thing. Yeah. Check. Well, no, well. Uh, did you consider like a briefcase of cash? Or? <laughs> no. Metrics. <laughs> 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 yeah. Duffel bag. No. But we, I'd love to do that someday. Just bring, here's your, yeah. here's the grant I promised you. <laughs> yeah. I think they'd probably appreciate it. In bags. Well, but what we realized is we want to be involved. So I don't know if this is typical in with philanthropists, but we we wanted to know what they could do. And, and what's amazing about researchers is when they have the ability to communicate what they're doing, because not... All yep. Of them do. Yep. It really goes a long way, and and so we really spent a lot of time figuring out what they do with a lot of translation, and then where our goals were and where we wanted to to bring humanity, if you will. But what we learned in that effort as well is we we don't know that much about the body and about stem cell reprogramming. And so we, we found this balance of figuring out how to agree on goals about what, what worked with us about how to, to help humans that didn't necessarily put tie them to a very specific um, line, if you will. So we gave them some freedom, if you will. And what was cool about that, because the heart was, was a, a big part of the goals about figuring out like how do we repair a damaged heart, like with um, a heart attack or something. But because we didn't want to tell them how to do the science, because we don't know anything about science. So, so we just learned as philanthropists that you, you, you want to be careful about how you write any of your grants and what the specifics are, because if you start messing with the core expertise of the grantee, mm. now you're ta- you could potentially are taking them off course. Mm-hmm. And so what happened with us is um, there was research going on. I don't remember what the original goal was, but, but by almost accident, they figured out a way to reprogram a cell into being an insulin-producing cell. And that wasn't the original goal. However, it has huge implications for diabetics. Yes. And so by, by having this sort of flexible framework about allowing them to do research while still kind of running towards goals that get to people as quickly as possible. This one all of a sudden funded, this this just had an offshoot now about figuring out how we can have this insulin producing cells really get into the body and help with diabetes. So that was a really cool thing that we learned about how you can fund science and support it and, and have a loose enough framework to let them come up with discoveries that then can be a whole new a whole new thing. Uh, fascinating. Uh, so that is, um, I, I have uh, one more question for you, but I have a, um, it's actually one that I have for everybody, so I'm at the end, we'll come back and, and popcorn it. I'll go, uh, I have a, a few questions for Heidi, and then uh, a few questions for, uh, I do have, they're on the dish. <laughs> the, the dish hey, this has all been great. I've, Hopefully this I've is enjoyed helpful. this. Hopefully I've this is helpful this. to you. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Um, okay, uh, so uh, I'm going to start uh, for you the, with the same question I started for him. Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Oh, wow. How long is this podcast? <clears throat> I mean, I you, you don't need to cover your entire they're, they're childhood. Gonna, they should cut out a lot of what I said. <laughs> um, I was born in Switzerland. Oh. So, but I'm an American birth abroad. So when Rod made a reference about me being an American. So you're a natural born citizen? What do you mean? I'm not sure. <laughs> I was. I'm definitely born in America, so it's never been something I had to think about. Yeah. yeah no. I'm born in Switzerland. Are I you el- Are you eligible to be president? I guess. Is- I don't think well, so. You're definitely not because you're a woman. Right. But- well. Uh, <laughs> I, I took the best I could get down here. Yeah. No. I think it's one of those rules where I, I'm not born on American soil. It's va- uh, so. Uh, McCain was also Damn. was also not born on. Oh. He was born in Panama. Because he was a, mil- a military, this. and he was—I mean, he... you've made a great president so far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. That's clearly not a requirement for the to be president of the foundation that you. 
Right. No, here, here we're, uh, <laughs> we're pretty cool. So you were, but you, so your parents were Americans and you were born in Switzerland. Correct. Yeah, uh, what so were they, what, what were they doing there? Were they? It's, it's, there's lots of long stories <laughs> about me, but my dad was a troubleshooter, but, but a good one, not, not the new definition of troubleshooting. Um, he would help turn around bankrupt companies. Okay. So he was knighted in Italy, for instance, hmm. for having brought a factory onto mainframes because hmm. he was the technology <laughs> team. So he's an Italian knight. Yeah. Yeah, he was knighted. Well, that's, it's, yeah, there's some, that's there's something to say at parties. And, yeah? I didn't realize. Right. So, um, I'll, try so to sit up, I'll try to sit up a little bit. Oh, thank you. I'm <laughs> You went to high school in Guam. I did. Okay. Yeah, and then high, uh, college in New England, and then I settled back in California afterwards. And that was Hampshire College yeah. with Rod. Exactly. I Hampshire. assume that's this is how you met. Yes, exactly. Uh, why did Why did you go to Hampshire? I was accustomed to pretty dramatic changes in my life, having lived all over the place, and at the time I was living on a tropical island. And Western Massachusetts is the opposite of that. Exactly. For <laughs> some crazy reason, I thought I might enjoy snow. That didn't last you didn't? too long. Uh, I'm more of a tropical girl. It's Ironic, the snow, I was born in Switzerland. The snow is very pretty. It is. And it at is. the beginning, when you encounter it, it's very interesting and it can be fun. But one of the, It's cold. <laughs> one of the things I learned about Maine is that we, we, like, we like winter in December. And a little bit in January. <laughs> and not so much in February. And March, March. starts to become a problem. Yeah. Uh, and often, our winter up there would go into April and May. I remember some wow. snowstorms in May. Wow. Uh, and that's, that's just... My dad used to joke that um, we made March in Maine for people who don't drink. In case they want to know what a hangover is like. <laughs> <laughs> I think he probably didn't say that originally. But that's awesome. I like to give him... The, I'm the, I first heard it from him. Um... So, uh, do you remember how you and I met? At Nexus. Yes. Specifically, yeah. where? Do you know where we were? Where? I don't remember. We were in the elevator at the White House. Ah. Okay. <laughs> but had you already spoken with the foundation? No, I don't. I, ah. I, I knew nothing about it. I didn't, okay. know, I didn't even know that, uh, that you were a member of, uh, of Nexus. I was on the, so I am uh, quite close with Rachel. Mm -hmm. I was, in fact, on the original organizing team for the very first Nexus. Um, and, uh, uh, I even lived in, I lived in Rachel's house for three months. Ah. <laughs> uh, and, um, uh, so, uh, I usually would know like who was coming and stuff like that. Mm. I didn't, I had no idea that you were coming. Uh, I was working for public foundation at the time and Sergio gave a talk that morning and, I, and I, he got in the elevator with me and, he, and I remember he asked, you know, how did I do? And I said, terrible. Of course you did terrible. You always do terrible up there. <laughs> I uh, he's a he, he's a funny guy. He, we had the same similar sense of humor, and I think that's what he wanted to hear. If I had said, "Oh, you did great," he wouldn't have believed me. <laughs> uh, but then, uh, and then you, and then you said you told him that uh, that he did very good, and uh, and I said, "Hello, how are you?" And you said, "You're Heidi," and and you gave me your card, and I looked at it, and I saw the name Roddenberry, and I figured that out pretty quickly. Uh, and um, and I probably thought you were a jerk. <laughs> you were horrible, and that's why I was like, "You actually did a great job, sir." <laughs> He's no, he's a good speaker, and he's uh, uh, very, very, very. You, when he's up on stage, you wouldn't be able to tell. He has a really good TED talk uh, that I recommend listening to, uh, called "Media is the New Currency," uh, and uh, he's very, you wouldn't know from watching that that he, how much stage fright he has. Uh, and uh, it's one of the things I do. Uh, I come from a theater background, uh, and I, I just sort of learned from that that you say the opposite of, uh, like, you don't say good luck, you say break a leg, right? right. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's how we, um, you know, just how, you know, how I uh, have a rapport with him. Um, but uh, obviously I've seen you um, at several Nexus since. Was that your, the first one? The, this was a Obama White House, it should right. be noted. We will not be going back uh, until there's a change in yeah. the administration. Um, I don't think we're welcome, I'm not sure. Yeah, I didn't want to go. Yeah, yeah that, most of the people wouldn't go is the reason that we're not even asking. Uh, no, I had been, my first experience with Nexus was at the UN. Okay. And so then I went to the... Uh, sorry to miss you up there. One of the things that's become kind of a pro like I used to like Nexus because it was realistic that you could meet everybody, 
Uh, now, actually, it's, it's all I can do just to connect with the people that I met at previous conferences. Right. I mean, we had 900 people this year. Yeah. Uh, in just two and a half days, that's overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, and this, and it's, the shame is this, because I would love to have a conversation with all, with every single one of those 900, right? Like an hour-long right. chat about what they're doing in their yeah. lives, right? And this is my effort to, 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 try to, get, to try to get that stuff done, right? Because it's hard to have a good, to like, you can have... You can make good connections there, but uh, you need to have a sit-down right. chat afterwards. A lot of people ask me how best to engage with Nexus, and that's usually what I tell them. Try to have – it's not about what you say at the conference. It's, it's you know, get right. their contact information and, uh, uh, and follow up with them. This is my chance to apologize to all the people that I said I would contact <laughs> and haven't. So. Thanks for listening to this episode of Open Door Philanthropy featuring Rod Roddenberry. If you're interested in learning more about the work of the Roddenberry Foundation, check out roddenberryfoundation.org. And as always – if you're looking or willing to provide helpful and candid feedback on unfunded grant proposals, please sign up at unfundedlist.com. Mm-hmm.